0: or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Jason Bellara and this is the Know Your Why podcast. Today I'm here with Rich Summers. Rich is an active real estate investor and entrepreneur. He has a portfolio of apartment buildings and short-term rentals valued in excess of 35 million. Uh, Rich started out his real estate investing journey by cashing out his 401k to buy his first apartment building. So first of all, Rich, Thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time.
2: Jason, it's an honor to be here. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited for the conversation today.
1: (laughs) Me too, me too. And uh, I was saying before we started recording, I'm a big fan of your podcast, so I'm uh, excited to have you. And I'd really just love it if you would kind of tell us your story. Just start from wherever you feel like you want to and, and kind of walk us through your journey into real
2: estate. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up uh, middle class. My mom was an immigrant. She was uh, grew up in uh, Taiwan. Um, my parents both know the value of working hard for your money and, and, and saving money. Um, I was taught from a young age to go to school, get good grades, go to college, and get a job. And for the most part, that's what I did. Um, I have a background in retail and sales. Started working some retail jobs when I was 16. In college, I got into cell phone sales. That was the first time I really realized that I worked in something to where I could kind of control my income to a certain degree, and I really excelled at it. I really liked sales. I started selling cars. Um, graduated school in 2008. I wanted to sell commercial real estate, and I interviewed with C.B. Richard Ellis and Grubb and Ellis, a couple of co- commercial brokerages at the time, and it was 08, everything was coming down. Both of those internship positions were pulled, and they were like, hey, we love your hustle, but this is not a good time to get into the industry. So I found myself working on a car lot, figuring out, what I was going to do in life. And I kind of backed into a job as an air traffic controller. Someone had told me that they were hiring with no experience government job. I applied. And two weeks later, they they said, hey, we got a position for you if you want to come out to Oklahoma. So I said, sure, let's do it. So I went out there. That was where the initial training facility was. I ended up spending six years in LA, five years down here in San Diego as a controller. And along the way, I read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Remembered real estate and thought, man, I got, I got to, I got to change my path here. And so I just started, you know, reading books, listening to podcasts, uh, going to networking events, everything I get my my hands on that involve real estate investing, apartments. Um, I just became obsessed. I didn't do anything for like six months, but study and network. And um, at the time, I did what society and, and and quite frankly, like a lot of people in my, not in, not in my life, but a lot of people will tell you is a little bit too risky, but I cashed out the 401k, uh, pulled out a home equity line of credit against my primary residence here in San Diego and started buying some cash producing real estate. First deal was 11 unit building in Cincinnati. Uh, shortly after that, I partnered with my two partners today. We, uh, we went in and joint ventured on a 32 unit building in Indianapolis, um, st- started the podcast. Bought some short-term rentals along the way. Learned how to raise money. Uh, took down a couple larger syndicated deals last year, and uh, just launched a uh, new company in the short-term rental space called Fortune Cribs. And this year, I'm going to be focusing on growing the short-term rental side of the portfolio. And uh, that's kind of my my story in a nutshell. Since I, I've left the uh, the day job, and I've been full-time real estate investor and entrepreneur for just over a year now. Man, it's 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 been a fun journey.
1: Awesome, awesome. I mean ton to talk about there so I'm excited um, first of all and this is real estate unrelated but I had no idea that you could just sort of become an air traffic controller that it's mm-hmm. not something you have to go to school for or anything like that I, I assumed it was like a, a four-year degree or something you know there was some uh, higher level of training that went into that
2: Yeah, there's historically been a huge shortage of air traffic controllers, I would say for the last 12 to 15 years. And so um, they are always hiring people, I believe you can still get hired off the street. um, If you apply at the right time. Um, It is it is a there's a lot of training that you go through. I mean, you you might be I took me two and a half years to get done training, you know, so it's not easy doesn't happen overnight. But um, it is lucrative. And it it is fun if, if that's your thing.
1: Very interesting. Um, well, let's talk about cashing out the 401k. Because as you sort of alluded to, most people would say, that's very dangerous. Don't do that. You know, wh- why would you, you know, you're, you're taking a huge risk there. So what, I mean, how did that work for you? Maybe if you don't mind talking about sort of what, what negatives and positives, like why did, obviously you did it, you felt there was positive to it, but I, I know that people will. Probably put up a lot of, uh, you know, resistance when they hear something like that. So, can you dive into that a little bit and talk about, you know, your mindset behind it and what what you really gained slash what what was the downside?
2: Yeah. Well, I knew I needed cash flow so I could quit the W two. And if you study the 401k model, it's been around since the 1980s. It does not produce any cash flow, um, so that was one of the downsides. Um, the other thing that I didn't like is you have to wait to age 59 and a half to start taking distributions from your 401k. That's a long ways away. If you try to take a distribution before then, um, there's a lot of penalties and a lot of taxes that 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 you gotta pay. Um, and it, they, they strongly dis- discourage you from pulling your money out, you know? And it's it's challenging It's because it's like, okay, this is a slice of my heart or an income in time that I'll never get back. That's my money. If you go to the bank or a credit union and try to take a withdrawal, they give you money. But with the 401k system, it's like, they, they don't let you take it out till age 59 and a half. So it's like, whose money really is it, you know? And I used to be a big 401k pusher for many years because that's all I knew. But all those things compounded um, in the fact that I knew I needed some sort of nest egg to really like, get started, you don't need to but it's nice if you have a little nest egg to get started. And so I decided, you know what, I'm going to cash this out. And it was scary at first, because like you alluded to society says it's risky, and you shouldn't be doing it. so I was essentially taking a risk, but, you know, looking back, Jason, you know, at the end of the day, all those risks that people allude to are real. So put some weight on those risks, but on the other side of the balance scale is another risk. And it's this, I could be 80 years old one day laying in my bed, staring at the ceiling, kicking myself. Cause I never tried anything in life. How about that risk? Cause that's a risk too, that a lot of people don't talk about.
1: Yeah, no, I agree 100%. And, and I, I'll add another risk to that when you're talking about money that you can't access, whether it's a 401k or an IRA until you're of retirement age. What if you don't make it that long? Exactly. Then like it, nobody wants to think that way, right? But uh, you know, but the reality is, is that you might not make it to ever use that money or do anything. It, it might just disappear, essentially. So it's kind of, uh, there's... There's risk to taking it out, but but there's in reality, a lot of risk to, to leaving it in there too. So it's kind of
2: lost opportunity cost. 100%. And you're completely right. I mean, tomorrow is never guaranteed. We don't know when our last day is. And when you look at it that way, that gives you more reason to take action and commit. And looking back, I'm so glad I did, because if you can strategically invest in the right assets... Um, you know, since then, since I cashed out the 401k, that money's coming back to me um, through a couple deals already. So I got my money back, I still own um, one of the assets. And then I was able to 1031, one of those into another one. And those deals are both paying me significantly more and growing my net worth significantly more than had I just stuck with the system.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a It's, it's a topic that has come up a number of times on, on this podcast with different guests in that the, the traditional retirement route, what, what people learn in school, what they're sort of taught to follow along. I guess it, it's better than doing nothing. It's better than just either saving no money or, you know, it's, it's a better option than doing nothing, but it's, it's really not the best option. It maybe is the easiest option because you don't have to think about it, but it's, not, it's definitely not the best option for what you're, because with a now that you've got that money invested, as you mentioned before, if you can't touch it till you're 59 and a half, you're literally just like piling money, piling money into that 401k. You can't do anything with it until 59 and a half. With your real estate, now you've put it into these cash flowing assets and along the way, you're getting money you're getting cash flow that you can use to reinvest to, to uh, fund your lifestyle whatever it is and still those assets are growing over time and so when you do get to 59 and a half you're you're going to you're going to have received all of the cash flow along the way and still have still have those assets so it's it's yeah. it's just a it's very eye opening i think once you kind of figure out that maybe the 401k is not really the best or the IRA, all of that stuff's not really necessarily the best way you can do it.
2: I agree. I mean, you don't get to take advantage of leverage like we do in real estate. Um, You don't get to take advantage of all the tax advantages like we do in real estate. Um, There's just so much baked in there. And you're right. I agree with you, you know, for, for the everyday person, if they're not going to do anything, I think investing in the 401k is better than doing nothing. Um, However, if you have a competitive advantage in real estate investing, I don't think that there's any reason you should have any money in the 401k. Yeah. I strongly believe that.
1: It's a very valid point. And you know, you can, I think some people would argue it, but I I really think it's once you get into the real estate space, it's hard to see why that makes sense. And I mean, there's so many, (laughs) it's funny, like all these things just keep popping in my head about what it's like, you don't have any control over it. I think if you, looked at your returns that you achieved in your 401k versus the returns that you've achieved in your real estate, it's probably not even comparable. It's just uh, another example. There are, there's so many rules in place for the 401k and IRAs in terms of maximum contributions and things like that. So you can't even, you can't even sort of be a go-getter and say, I'm going to, you know, put more money into this so I can really build for my retirement. It's not It's not an option. And if you work, I learned this the hard way, if you work for a big enough company with employees that have a wide enough range of salaries, you actually still can't do the maximum because it has to be averaged amongst all of the people that are contributing. So Mm. if you're uh, a high earner in a company with people that maybe aren't as high earners, you won't you can't actually contribute to the maximum. So it, there's a lot of things that aren't spoken about. It's kind of like, this is just what you do, but it's realistically not the, the best option, I think. So that's a bit of a <laughs> off tangent, but um, I mean, let's talk about your your real estate portfolio, kind of, you said you bought an 11 unit and then 32 unit, and then sort of got into short-term rentals. Maybe talk about that path, but how you picked and chose what, we know, where to go with each.
2: Yeah. So when I first started studying real estate investing, I was most attracted to the multifamily asset class. So that's really what I focused on studying strategy, how to buy value at apartment buildings and how to source them and that sort of thing. And so, um, you know, bought the 11 units in Cincinnati and then JV'd on the 32 units in Indy. Since then, I've um, refinanced all my money out of the 11 units, still own it, um, the thirty-two unit we actually just sold and closed a couple weeks ago did a nice that that was nice. We basically tripled the value of the property in awesome. uh, just over two years renovated 50% of the units, clean up the deferred maintenance. The market is hot right now, as you know. Um, along the way, backed into a few short-term rentals, I had a, there's a local credit union here that was giving me some very high leverage loans for residential property. And so along the way, I started buying a couple of short-term rentals. They actually did very, very well for me. Those short-term rentals are, are what provided the cash flow that I needed to quit my job. Um, and so, you know, it's been challenging for us to find deals to pencil. We took down a couple larger syndications last year. Um, we took down a thirty, a 150 unit in Greensboro, North Carolina. That was our first syndication, the Arbors. And then shortly after that, we took down a 145 unit building also in Greensboro called Timber Creek. Those deals just aren't out there again. They're just not out there today. Um, yields have come down, cap rates have compressed. Um, if you have a, an, a broker listed opportunity out there with a decent pricing guidance, there might be 50 property tours and 40, 45 offers. And by the time you get to best and final, you're going to have to overpay to be awarded that deal. And so we, we can't find deals to pencil, at least in the markets that we've been looking into. Uh, meanwhile, these short term rental assets that we have, have just been chugging along. portfolio wide occupancy cash flowing, um, even through the pandemic and the tax advantages with these are insane. I could touch on that if you want, but um, decided just, you know, sometimes you got to take what the defense is giving you. And it's not that we're going to stop buying multifamily altogether. We're going to continue to manage the properties that we have. And we'll look at some deals that hit our inbox that are actually, you know, off market, but um, this year, 2022, we're going to focus on growing the short-term rental side of the portfolio. So that's kind of my reasoning behind it.
1: Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. It, it is very hard to find a deal that that you won't have to overpay for. And and I mean, mm. you know, probably two years ago, people were saying the same thing, and the market continues to go up. So it's kind of, it's you don't know what's going to happen, but you also have to be conservative and be you know smart and and just not you sort of go outside what you're comfortable with in terms of pricing. And and I agree. It's like, if it, if it looks like a deal that makes sense on paper, right off the bat, there's probably something going on either (laughs) that you don't know about, or there's, uh, you know, going to be, you know, 40, 50 offers. So it's not, um, it's, it's, it's a tricky market. It's not impossible, but it's tricky market. And I I do think uh, short-term rentals have become really really hot as well now you know everybody seems to be talking about it um i i'd love to hear kind of about your short-term rentals i want to hear about uh fortune cribs i kind of want to go into all that and i and i also would love it if you'll throw in some of those tax benefits in there because i have myself been looking at it uh are are your short-term rentals all all around uh san diego or do you have them kind of in other markets
2: yeah so san diego uh scottsdale Uh, onboarding third-party client properties right now in Indianapolis, St. Augustine, Florida, um, Arizona, and then we're looking at a bunch of other markets right now. But um, to to touch on the tax benefits, so one of the loopholes in the tax code says, if your average guest stay for your short-term rental for the calendar year is seven nights or less, then you can use the bonus depreciation from a cost segregation study to not only offset the passive streams of income aka your cash flow but also to offset active streams of income so if you had like a w-2 job or a 1099 any any sort of business that it was an active business you would be able to use the bonus depreciation from that short-term rental to offset active streams of income which is pretty powerful you don't see that in traditional long-term rentals and so um that's one of the 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 major benefits that we don't see in the apartment space and that sort of stuff but the cash flow is what is just it's just night and day so we can strategically go into specific markets and select properties and neighborhoods that um, we know are going to do very, very well as a short-term rental. So we have software um, that we use. It's called airDNA.co. You can pull up any zip code in the world that has short-term rentals and you can filter it down to, you know, two bedroom, three bedroom, four bedroom, six, seven, eight bedroom. And you can see what the properties are actually making um, revenue wise. And so you're not going into these markets and guessing like we used to back in the day.
1: Nice. The so you're referring to the, those tax benefits and being able to write off in W two and, and just so it's said neither of us are CPAs and yeah we're not definitely do your own research. Giving, I'm giving, definitely right, not, not giving CPA. tax <laughs> advice, but it is something that uh, is very compelling, and I I think mm. the term that has is tossed around a lot is real estate professional status. That's a you know the the way that you can. If you can establish real estate professional status, which has very specific set of rules, uh, mm-hmm. then you can start using your passive losses to offset your W-2 or your active income. And so it, it, with the short-term rentals, if you don't know this, fine, but it, with the short-term rentals, is that qualifying you as a real estate professional status? Or is that an entirely separate sort of loophole that allows you to use those losses against um W two income.
2: So, so again, confirm this with your CPA. Yeah. But <laughs> as far as I understand it, and as far as is I've been, you know, um, my CPA has been advising me and other people I know in this space. It voids that f- uh, real estate professional status. So you could have a full time job, and spend significantly less time in your short term rental business, and you can still take take advantage of those those tax loopholes. So it's it's nice. pretty powerful.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well. Uh, talk to me about Fortune Cribs. Tell me, I, I like I said, I follow along y'all's podcasts. and so I, I know a lot of your background, but I actually haven't had haven't heard about this yet. Maybe I'm just a little behind. But uh, catch me up on Fortune Cribs. Tell me what you're doing there.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So um, to circle back a little bit, you know, a few months ago when we discovered, hey, we're going to focus on growing the short-term rental side of the portfolio. Um, I decided, hey, I'm going to start a management company to start managing my short-term rentals as we grow and then also uh, third-party client um, short-term rentals as we grow because there's really not a business out there that is kind of a turnkey service. Um, You hear a lot of people that want to get into the short-term rental space and they want to produce cash flow but uh, they don't want to do any of the work or learn how to do it. There's a lot of different intricacies that go into short-term rentals and it can be workload intensive if you don't create the right systems. And so this company is called Fortune Cribs. Uh, we'll help clients uh, identify uh, short-term rentals in select markets around the country based on their budget um, that we feel will do very good as a short-term rental under our management. And our team will help them close on the property. We got all sorts of different lenders that we work with. Uh, you can buy product for as little as 10% down. Um, our team will design, furnish, and then manage all the day-to-day, the cleans, the turnover, the repair, maintenance, the marketing, the guest communication, the accounting, the A to Z really. So it's, it's completely hands-off to the client. And uh, so far, I mean, we launched last month. So, so far the appetite's been tremendous. So building out the infrastructure right now, building out the team, we're launching a few properties this week. Um, got a team out there in Indianapolis and in Scottsdale right now, launching a few properties. So it's it's been fun, and um, yeah, I'm excited for it, man. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean,
1: congratulations on getting that going. I, I, that's a definitely a a need, and I think you're right. Like people, with with the amount of cash flow that that at least I'm hearing on short term rentals, it, you know, paying whatever I don't know how you charge, but percentages or whatever it is, but paying something to just let someone else manage it. I think there's probably plenty of money to go around in those, especially in like the high-end luxury type uh, short-term. Metals. Yeah,
2: absolutely. So, you know, I'm, I'm putting deals together for the, the clients and after all expenses, after debt service, after management fee and everything, we're, we're, we're drawing up deals for them that are anywhere from 20 to 35% cash on cash return. And that's just the cash flow they own a hundred percent of the the property. So they're still going to, you know, take advantage of the long-term appreciation, the tax benefits, the principal pay down. People are like, oh, I'm making $150 a door my long-term. I'm like, dude, that doesn't even get me out of bed.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It definitely is. Uh, it, it's, do you think, so it just brings up a, a good question. You know, you, you got kind of went away from multifamily a little bit because the market was so hot and it was hard to find deals do you anticipate the same thing happening in short-term rentals as Mm -hmm. as it seems a lot of people are migrating in that direction as well it's like I feel like even a year ago it was everybody talking about multifamily and now I feel like it's kind of transitioned where I hear almost everybody talking about short-term rentals there's still if you're in multifamily you're of course, going to hear about it, but in terms of what's being, uh, you know, what's the hot ticket item right now, it does seem like short-term rentals. Do you feel like, do you, if, are you seeing the market get, I don't know, do you feel like you're going it's going to get hard to achieve those returns?
2: I think it's still the first inning in short-term rentals. I, I really think it's still the first inning. Um, you know, apartments, the cap rates have compressed. They're probably going to continue to compress. We're, we're seeing a lot of inflation right now. I think, you know, with the government printing 40% of the, the currency and increasing the money supply, they're still printing money uh, due to the fact of, you know, this housing shortage that we're experiencing across America. I think it's going to take at least three years for them to build enough housing product for us to kind of meet that, you know, demand. And so I think we have a nice three year runway of a hot, Real estate market, I'm speculating here, so I, I could be wrong. I think all the apartment operators that are buying right now, on speculation, they're overpaying, I, I, they're probably gonna get paid off in the end with all the rent growth. Um, but to answer your question about the short-term rentals, no, I, I think we're still in the first inning. Um, a lot of the operators in this space um, are not savvy and sophisticated like we're seeing in these commercial real estate asset classes. And so if you can have a little bit of wherewithal and enter this arena and strategically select the right properties in the right markets, you can do very, very well. Um, I do believe short-term rentals are part of the reason why the housing market um, has been so hot because you know, outside investors that you know, live out of state can come in and buy these properties and pay significantly more than the everyday person that intends to occupy them because they're making such a high ROI. Um, And so I get it, you know, and and one of the biggest risks to this asset class is the regulatory environment changing. Mm -hmm. We're seeing a lot of markets around the country um, change their stance to short-term rentals because of the housing market. Um, Also, it takes away long-term rentals away from the actual market. And so it's driving out rent prices as well. So you are seeing a lot of that stuff. But um, as a general rule of thumb, I tell the clients, I'm like, look, you wanna to stick to states that are you know, more conservative. Generally speaking, I'll give you an example. So like a state like Arizona, great short-term rental market, Scottsdale, Arizona. Um, their governor signed something into effect four years ago that says it's illegal for local cities and municipalities within the state of Arizona to heavily regulate short-term rentals because their stance is the opposite. We wanna to encourage tourism. It helps stimulate our local economy helps float our local businesses and restaurants. And so we want the tourism. And so you're seeing some other states around the country. Indiana is another one. They signed the same thing into effect. So you wanna strategically get into the right states um, to protect you from the downside risk. And the other thing I would say is this, you wanna try to diversify. So if you're gonna go buy and build a portfolio of four, five, six, 10 short term rentals, you don't necessarily want them all to be in the same market. Um, ideally, if you're spread across three or four different markets, if one uh, market turns in terms of regulatory environment, you can simply sell and then move that equity into another market. So that's another way to kind of diversify if you would.
1: Yeah, no, it's a great point. And the, the diversification is a great point. But I also just the fact that there are certain markets, cities, municipalities that just straight up don't want short term rentals, they just, I mean, it's, because, uh, I mean, I've looked into it in a couple of different areas and, and more almost for my own use in the sense that mm-hmm. places that I would like to go, hey, can I use this as a short term rental when I'm not there? And it's like, I, I, I'm originally from Boston, I would love to have like a condo in Boston, I'm sure it would have to high demand, but it's nearly impossible to find a, a building or any, someone that will allow short term rentals, it's very highly regulated. The other place is Charleston, South Carolina. I used to live there. It's a great tourist destination. There's like, you may know this because you've looked into this stuff, but there's like two blocks on the peninsula of downtown Charleston that you're allowed to have short-term rentals. And then that's it. The rest, it's a very select little section of neighborhood that you're allowed to have short-term rental. And it's, so it's, it, is, uh, it, it is probably the one thing that m- maybe is... I'm not worried about it, but I think that that's what maybe is the biggest potential issue that you could run into with short-term rentals is if you buy in these markets specifically for this reason and for whatever whatever governmental thing happens that changes the rules, then you're sort of stuck with this and then you have to decide what to do with it. And it it yeah. may not sell for the price that you bought it for because it's then not going to be such a high cash generating type of asset. So um but yeah,
2: I-, I agree. And, and here's the, f- the funny thing. So like, I've looked in Charleston as well. Um, if you look into Charleston, there's actually a ton of short-term rentals all over. Oh yeah. <laughs> People and are doing so, it. Yeah. Yeah. And so here's the thing, you know, if you get into a short-term rental and the regulations change, you can always fall back to the midterm stay. So short-term rentals in most cities around the country are defined as anything less than 30 days. So if the regs change, you can always go to 30 day or more, furnished day, which there's still a growing demand for, as this work from home notion becomes more and more of a thing due to the pandemic. Uh, We had Neil Bawa on our podcast a few months ago, and he threw out the number and he thought this was conservative. 22 million Americans, roughly, 22 million Americans are adopting this new way of life to where they're not going back to the office. And they want to bounce around and explore and live in different cities around the country. And they don't want to move their furniture with them. So they're looking for furnished um, places to stay. Brian Chesney, the uh, CEO of Airbnb, he said people aren't staying in short-term rentals anymore. They're living in short-term rentals. And so it's becoming yeah. a new way of life. Um, so you got the midterm stay that you can you know, pivot to. But also, I mean, I'll be honest with you, man. Like A lot of these cities are, that are regulating it, they don't have the wherewithal to actually regulate it. And so like here in San Diego, there's a lot of talk of their regs changing. They could, they keep delaying it. But what I'm going to do here is I'm going to try to get a permit. I feel like if I can get a permit, great. It will bring more demand to those properties that can legally operate. But if you can't, I'm going to continue to operate until they shut me down. I know... Um, investors that have short-term rentals in different markets where the regs have changed years ago, three, four, five years ago, and they're still operating. No one said anything, and so uh, you got some backups. And then obviously, you could always sell and move your equity to another market. So it's just um, it's good to have backup plans and you know exit plans if you would.
1: Yeah, you have to have multiple exit strategies, strategy. strategy. Yeah strategies mm-hmm. <laughs> you should uh, mm-hmm. sort of always have that in any of your you know sort of investment endeavors but it it, it does make sense in it and i'm wasn't i don't not bringing that stuff up to scare anyone away it's just sort of it's a part of the conversation when you're looking at short term rentals i think is what yeah. is that you know because i agree i mean i when i was looking at charleston it was like if you go on airbnb they're all over the place they're mm-hmm. you know in it but it's yeah it's the cities aren't really equipped to go figure out who's doing it and then go shut them down. It's just not. So it's kind of a, there's a disconnect there, but
2: if, if here's the last thing I'll say on this, this, this topic is if you go into a market to where they have a set up ordinance, an established ordinance, and the city is making tax dollars from every one of your reservations the city is essentially your partner. And so that type of situation would make me feel pretty good about stepping into yeah. it and, and investing in some short-term rentals.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's a good way for the cities to sort of be okay with it. I think the hotels hate it, mm-hmm. right? The hotel owners, I'm sure, don't like Airbnb. They don't like, you know, because it's going to cut down on the stays there, but mm-hmm. I think you just have to, you know, it's it's on them to sort of pivot and make the hotel more appealing then. Um mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, very cool stuff. Uh, I appreciate that sort of dive into short-term rentals. I think I think it's a really interesting space. Um, Rich, let's let's switch gears a little bit, and I'll uh, go. We'll go to the questions. I'll ask you the questions that I ask every guest. And the first one is based on the name of the show being "Know Your Why." So, Rich, what is your why? What drives you? You know, kind of keeps keeps you going. What pushes you?
2: Yeah, well what makes me happy and I didn't really I didn't really learn this until my mid 30s um, but what I discovered truly makes me happy is growth and progress and so knowing that I'm always continually trying to grow not only in business and real estate but in my relationships um, in my health, um, my friendships that I have and that sort of thing but my why is, I don't want to grow old one day and have any regrets. And yeah. one of my favorite quotes is don't fear failure, fear regret. And so that's really my why.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. I, and I think that's, I think, you know, personal growth is a huge motivational driver, right? It's like, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes some people just want to, just want to see what they can achieve. And I think that's, that's phenomenal. And I, and yeah, you, having no regrets is be that's the way to go. That's the way to, the way to go out, never looking back and saying, oh, I wish I had, you know, so I think Mm -hmm. that's, that's fantastic. Um, Second question, tell us something about yourself that isn't, uh, isn't well known, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, a hobby, a, a special skill, something along those lines that, that maybe not everybody knows about you.
2: Yeah. So I love sailing. I love being out in the water. Um, I used to be a sailing instructor when I was younger. I used to teach kids how to sail and so I've been doing it my whole life. Um, it's just it's a chill sport man. You can do it into your into your older years. Yeah. Um, something about just being out in the water, no engine, no motor, just you just hear the water and the wind. it's just so meditating. And uh, yeah, it's one of my favorite hobbies, man. I'm part of a sailing club out here in San Diego. One day I'd love to own my own sailboat, but uh, yeah, go out sailing, you know, sunset cruises along the bay. And it's just so relaxing to bring friends out there and just go out in the water, man.
1: Nice. I was going to say, I bet San Diego is a nice place for that.
2: Yeah. I mean, (laughs) Hey man, if you're ever, yeah. If you're ever in San Diego, Jason, you gotta, you gotta come out, man.
1: We'll do. We'll
2: do. I'm just
1: up the road. I'm in LA. So uh, yeah, I'll I'll get down there. My, My wife and I have been talking about Going down and uh, getting the kids to the zoo. So that's uh, definitely on the list. Okay.
2: Very nice.
1: Um, how can people reach you? What's the, what's the, we'll put in the show notes, but what's the best way to, when they hear this they want to get a hold of you?
2: Yeah. So you can find me on Instagram at rich underscore summers, uh, fortune cribs. If you want to learn more about that, it's fortunecribs.com. And then Pac3 Capital, which is our syndication company, we're gonna be launching a fund here this spring to go buy short-term rentals with our investors. That's Pack 3 capitalcom
1: Awesome. Okay, final question, Rich. What piece of advice would you give to people that are a little, maybe a year or two ago in the beginning of their journey when you were sort of starting out, what would you, what would you tell them to sort of help them you know, take that first step into real estate investing?
2: Yeah, I would say this, I would I would answer that question in, more in terms of like an approach. So I used to be this way and I had to train myself not to think this way. So most people, when they come up with an idea, it's a three-step process. So step number one is I have an idea, okay, I'm gonna do it. And step number two is they go into a planning phase. And then step three, they commit. The problem with that thought process is when you go into a planning phase, most people wait for the plan to be perfect before they commit. And so the more I studied successful entrepreneurs and real estate investors out there, and I'm this way now, but I never used to be, the three-step process is is significantly different. So one, they come up with the idea, like, hey, I'm gonna do this. Step two, instead of planning, step two is commit. And then step three is figure out how. And so I think the sooner you can start to implement that new thought process, the quicker you'll start actually taking action and achieving your goals in life.
1: Yeah, I love that. I think that's that's phenomenal advice. I think a lot of people get lost in analysis paralysis or you know just mm-hmm. that that planning phase. And you're right, they want people want it to be perfect. And I, and mm-hmm. I agree. Like this is something that happens to me a lot. I'm like oh, I don't you know, you can simplify it, even it to, to, uh, a, a, a social media post. You're like, mm-hmm. I just, I just want to say just the right thing. And it's like so many people that are successful, you know, believe that, that, you know, done is better than perfect. And so it's just kind mm-hmm. of taking action getting stuff done. I, I love, I love your, your three-step approach though. I think that's, that's perfect. Yeah.
2: Success is not a straight line.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Well, Rich, this is awesome. I really appreciate you
1: coming on. Uh, I think, uh, shared a lot of great insight into especially short-term rentals I think that's a, a very exciting space for people and uh, myself included I, I may have to have some conversations outside of this recording to <laughs> I, I hit you up so I can get started too but but I really do think um, it is you know kind of the, the new thing and, I, and I'm actually happy to hear you think it's kind of in the early innings on this one so that there's still uh, room to grow.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Jason, it's been a pleasure, man. Thank you so much for having me on the show and uh, yeah, feel free to reach out of your listeners too, man. Uh, I do a lot of consulting for the short-term mental stuff. So if you have any questions, I'm always uh, happy to jump on a call or grab coffee.
1: Awesome. Sounds good. Well, thank you again. And uh, with that, we will go ahead and sign out.
0: I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey without a strong why